Did Jesus violate the Sabbath? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hear of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Hear of the Story, a podcast to help you focus on the gospel in every area of your life and ministry. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, we are continuing our journey through the gospels, this survey that we're doing of the life and ministry of Jesus while he was here walking around with humans in, um, you know, in his human form, pre-glorified state. So there's all of my caveats that are in there, um, hopefully, that are saying Jesus is alive today. Jesus is a human being. Jesus is God. Uh, And Jesus is in his glorified body right now. So um, (laughs) I'm telling you, we just need to have our, our episode where we just do nothing but caveats. You know, I feel like that's coming up, you know, in our doctrine series. Yeah, um, when we get those episodes. Yeah. You know, eventually we're going to talk about um, one that starts with an E and uh, and it's not evangelism. So that'll be fun. Maybe we'll have, to have, we'll have to have exhaustive show notes for that one explaining all of our. <laughs> when we said this, we didn't mean this, this, this or this. Oh, don't worry. We've got a video that'll go out right before there it. So go. then, you know, I'll probably get fired after that, but that's OK. All right. Let's try not to get fired today talking about Jesus and the pool of Bethesda. That sounds perfect. Thank you for for bringing us back on track. We are indeed talking about um, one of Jesus's miracles. Um, as we're doing this survey, we're kind of bouncing around a little bit in the timeline. Part of the reason that we we are doing that both here on the podcast, and actually this is something that we do in the Gospel Project material that uh, that we're part of the team of as well. The reason that we do that is is because. The gospels themselves are not strictly chronological. They are they they each one has um, is bookended chronologically in that they start with the beginning of of Jesus' life, or in John's gospel's case, it's the the eternality of Jesus <laughs> um, that starts that one off, and each of them ends with the crucifixion and the ascension, um, and and so. But in between, they, they're each telling the story to serve a narrative and theological point. And so um, so that's kind of what we're what we're doing as we survey this as well. There is there is more of a theological point that is going on in that we want to exp- we, we want people to understand how Jesus is um, serving his people, how he is saving his people, how he how he is this this promised Messiah from uh, centuries past. So um, so all of that said, um, we should talk about we let's let's do a quick little run through of what is actually happening in this passage that we're looking at today, which comes from John chapter five. Yeah, so Jesus is in Jerusalem at the beginning of John chapter 5, and he goes to the pool of Bethesda. Uh, and while he's there, he, he sees a, a bunch of people who are um, blind, unable to walk, have various illnesses and infirmities. And he notices one man in particular and says, hey, do you want to get well? 
which is I always find a fascinating question, and I, I really want to understand, you know, what did Jesus expect the man to say? Did he expect him to say no? Nah, I'm um, fine. No, nah, I'm good. I just like coming here for the show. Um, it, it's just a fascinating question that I, I really always makes me curious. But the man basically says, well, you know, I, I want to, my paraphrase, uh, but there's nobody around to help me get into the pool when the waters are stirred. And, and we'll talk about this in a minute. Uh, so Jesus says, well, again, my paraphrase, I got a better way for you. Just get up, pick up your mat and walk. And so that's exactly what the man does. And it's an amazing miracle. I think the man had been unable to walk for, for many years. Um, and so immediately this miracle occurs. He gets up, he picks up his mat as, as per the instruction of Jesus. And again, we're going to talk about that in a minute. It's really important. Uh, and then he begins to walk. Great miracle. But there's a problem. Uh, some of the Jewish leaders nearby see this and they just freak out. Uh, they are not happy at all. Why? Because a man who could not walk can now walk? No, they look past that. Uh, they're spiritually blind in this moment. They don't pay any attention to this miracle. Instead, they, they zero in on the mat and say, wait a minute, you are carrying a mat. It's the Sabbath. You're violating the Sabbath. Thus, our, our question we begin the episode with. And you are, you're wrong. And so the man says, well, it, it, the man who healed me told me to do this. And that's where uh, the bulk of John 5 is actually this interaction between the Jewish leaders and Jesus, more of Jesus addressing them, rebuking them. Um, and, and so if you have a red letter uh, edition of a Bible, for example, you'll see most of John 5 after about verse 19 or so is almost all, if not all, red. Um, and that is because it's it's just Jesus rebuking these leaders for their hardness of heart. One of the questions that comes up right away, and you can see this right on the page, is that um, is what's the deal with it jumping from verse three to verse five? And so there, and and that's a really important one because you're going to see that in most, if not all, modern translations of the Bible. Uh, the King James is. Um, is pretty consistent in in keeping that verse in. But the question is, is why do other some translations leave it out while while some keep it in? The short answer really comes down to comes down to this. When we see this happen in any passage of scripture, including this one, what that is is that's an indicator that it this verse or this chunk of verses. Um, is disputed. Now, what that typically means is that it is not found in the earliest manuscripts or not found in the majority of, of manuscripts in uh, in a, a variety of regions. There's lots and lots and lots of explanations for that. What we need to say right away with a disputed verse, um, these do come up all through scripture, but none of them affect any essential truth of the Christian faith. They're all in. They're all in different places and and times. Usually, and and almost are exp explanatory yeah. notes and, in appearance. And, and let me jump in there and say, nor should this cause anybody to doubt the reliability of Scripture. If anything, it should strengthen it. That scholars are so diligent that they wrestle with these things and they will put it on the table and say, "Hey, look, here's a passage. Here's a verse." Um, you know, I'm looking at the CSB study Bible and a lot of times in modern translations, they will have a footnote mm -hmm. by where that verse should be or could be, I guess I should say better. Um, and they'll have a footnote and say, 
here's the verse. We don't know if this is authentic or not, but here it is. So this should not cause anybody to doubt the reliability of Scripture. This strengthens it to remind us of the process by which we got the modern translations. And I mean the same. The other way you see it is with square brackets, and that's mm-hmm. typically that's typically where it's a larger chunk. Um, and you know, in John, end of Mark. Um, there's an entire chapter in John's Gospel as well, and so that is a question that that could come up in your group. Um, can, can come up in your own yeah. study. Can come up in a group study as well. Um, and now, what we should what that that verse that um, is excluded from most minor trend mo- modern translations. Let's start that over again. Now that verse that is excluded in most modern translations, um, that verse is kind of an interesting one because it's something that that fe- that uh, gives a little more color to the story that uh, that we see here in in this encounter with a man at the pool at Bethesda. So what's going on there, Brian? Yeah, and it, it really um, gets us to my first question as I read this, a question that kind of just leaps off the page to me is what was going on with these this, these waters, the, the pool of Bethesda? Because even without verse 4, you, you get down to the man and his response to Jesus when he, he says, do you want to get well? And, and he explains, well... Um, there's nobody to put me in the pool when the waters are stirred. And, and you're reading it, what do you mean? That makes no sense to me. What happens is verse 4, as you said, explains that, which is why a lot of scholars believe what was happening at some point was a, a scribe was, was copying uh, a manuscript, got to this account, recognized the dilemma of verse uh, 7, and said, I need to explain this. There should have been an explanation. It seems like somebody before me left it off. They skipped a line or two in their copying assignment. Let me add it back in. And that scribe apparently dropped in verse 4, which says, when the waters were stirred, the belief was that there was an angel who would do that stirring, and the first one into the pool would be healed of whatever was causing them a problem. So as we think about this, we, we have to ask, well, what's going on here? This even creates even more questions. Uh, does God work this way? Uh, we don't see that really today necessarily. Uh, so I think the question just begs itself. Well, first of all, let's be very clear. Yes, God could have used an angel to stir the waters to heal the first one in. That is well within God's personality, his character, his, his will. Uh, there's nothing that should cause us to say that is not true. We have to reject verse four because it's not true or could not be true. Um, So that's the first thing. But what we have to consider here is maybe verse four was accurate and that what was going on. But there are a couple other potential uh, explanations as well. One, it could be simply a superstition. That was the superstition that people believe that it didn't happen. God was not stirring the waters. It was simply superstition that this man had bought into. Another could be that it was a placebo effect kind of connected to superstition, that maybe it was just superstition, but placebo effect kicked in. And maybe somebody got out of the water one day and said, man, my back used to hurt. It doesn't hurt anymore. I've been healed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thinking it was because of the water. Another uh, thought is maybe there was something therapeutic about the waters themselves, a mineral 
properties or something. Uh, we know today you can go to places where there are some waters that has minerals and so forth that can be kind of soothing and healing. Um, or again, it could have been an act of God. We don't know. Um, and mm-hmm. I don't think it really matters where we land because it's not the main point, which is why I believe the Holy Spirit doesn't unpack this through John in the text because the, the pool of Bethesda is not the star of this story. The star of the story is the man by the pool of Bethesda. And I don't mean the man who cannot walk. I mean, Jesus who is interacting with the man who cannot walk. That's got to be our attention. Even having said that, if we're going to err anywhere in understanding this, the the most logical explanation that works with it is the one that aligns with God's character. So God, God does heal. God does um, does work in the lives of people. He has compassion. He has grace and mercy for people, regardless of their, regardless of anything, um, because he loves he loves the people that he has made, and um, and so just de- it's probably best when you're reading it to just default to God was doing something kind in this place at that time, and then move on. And f- keep your focus on the one on the interaction that is at the core of it. So, um, another question that does come up is, and this one's actually related to the question that opened this episode, um, is why did Jesus tell the man to pick up his mat? Um, you know, you see that in verse eight. This is a really, really important detail, um, particularly because of the day that this event happened. So, John called it out. That's how important it is. He said that now that day was the Sabbath. We see that at the end of verse nine. And, um, you know, and so Jesus has like tells this man, get up and walk. He heals him in many. He's, we've seen Jesus throughout and we continue to see Jesus throughout the, the gospels healing in many different ways. Um, but the instruction was very, very intentional because Sometimes Jesus was a little bit, he liked to poke a bear. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes the bear needs to be poked. That's certainly true. He wasn't, he, you know, he wasn't being a rebel for being a rebel's sake. Um, But um, at that, at that point in time, the religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees, they were extremely dogmatic and they had very strict views of how you obeyed God's commands. Um, they had traditions that didn't uh, didn't fully align with scripture. They added to it. Yeah. And so um, and a lot of those had to do with how you inter- how you behaved on the Sabbath. And so in that day you weren't allowed to pick up your pick up a mat. You weren't uh, you weren't really allowed to go for a, for a walk more than a few steps outside of your house. Um, and so people would find all kinds of ways to work around that too um basically the equivalent of carrying carrying around a couch cushion so that it's like no i'm still actually at home it's fine (laughs) um but these are the but they needed but so many of jesus's interactions with that with the religious leaders and people was to help them see the the true spirit of god's law and not limit themselves to their um, diminished legalistic view of of them to see something greater and pure and better 
Um, and and so that's and that's really what the leaders needed. Jesus con- needed they needed Jesus to confront them because in his confrontation he was pushing them toward repentance. Yeah, and, and that's that's so important. As we read through the Gospels, you will see that Jesus has a different temperament toward the, for lack of a better word, the normal people and the religious leaders. And it doesn't mean he was being duplicitous. It does not mean he was being hypocritical. No, he was providing what each needed. The people needed compassion, gentleness overall. The leaders needed more of a kick in the pants to wake them up. And yeah, I think here you can't miss it. When you just read this and you will see, pick up your mat in verses 8, uh, 10, 11, and 12. So you see it four times in what, about four verses. That mm-hmm. that tells us something. There's something important here. And it is that it's Jesus could have simply healed the man by saying, get up, you're healed. He could have touched him. He could have, he, we see him doing this in many different ways. But he intentionally, it seems, go to those leaders by telling the man, I want you to pick up your mat because yeah. I, I need this to get on the radar of the leaders. Had that not happened, uh, the, the leaders probably would have just looked past this and we would miss a lot of great teaching in John 5. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we look later in John 5. I mean, out of this passage, you have this, this gigantic um you know, explanation. And again, this is all of these ways that we get ahead of ourselves because we love (laughs) to get ahead of ourselves when we're talking about the Bible. But, um, you know, like this, this passage culminates in Jesus talking about how, um, you know, the, the religious leaders studied the word diligently thinking that in it, in it, they fat, they would have eternal life. And yet the scriptures testify about him. And so that is, and, and that's the whole point that he's getting. He's like, guys, you're missing it. This is about me. And, um, and not in, not in an arrogant way. If you or I said that, um, one, we'd just be lying, but two, um, we would be the most arrogant and evil duplicitous people in the universe because we are not the greatest good. And for us to point other people to what is far from being a great good, uh, instead of pointing them toward who is the greatest good, God himself, that's where we'd be wrong. But Jesus was right to point people to that which is the greatest, that which is the most beautiful himself. And so it would be unloving had Jesus not drawn attention to himself. And it would not have been true to the story of Scripture. Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, another thing that that comes up is in verse 14. And so Jesus says, uh, says to this man who's at the temple, um, he's gone and he's, he's, you know, told people what's happened. He's praising God for this. And Jesus says to him, see, you're well, don't sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Uh, what's the deal? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. What does he mean by worse? (coughs) Sorry. Yeah, it's interesting. He he just kind of tells him this vague kind of, hey, something worse. What does he mean by that? I, I think most scholars would agree that he has judgment in mind here, uh, that this is where Jesus is taking a man from a physical healing, taking him and pointing him toward a spiritual healing. The physical healing was important. Uh, again, 
We've talked about this, that, that all the miracles are twofold to reveal who Jesus is, his identity, draw attention to himself, as we just said, but he is not utilitarian in using people as props. He cares about people. He loves people. So this man in his condition burdened the heart of Jesus. And so he, he responded to that. So the physical healing matters, but of course, the spiritual healing that Jesus has come to perform in terms of forgiving sin and providing eternal life. That is the greater. So basically, uh, I think this is Jesus' way of saying, let's take account of your spiritual condition, not just your physical condition. And that really leads into the biggest question that we can ask of any passage of scripture, which is how does this point us to the gospel itself? And, and there's a couple of really big ways that this this one does. One, um, you know, it sets up many, uh, uh, it's, it's one of the many claims of Jesus's uh, deity. Yeah. Um, you know, there are a, there are a lot of people who wrongly assert that Jesus never claimed to be God even once and that this is some kind of add-on to yeah. it. Um, that's just not true. In, yeah. And they're uh, looking at it just reading the Bible and saying, well, he couldn't, he didn't say he was God anywhere because he doesn't some, and in, and in one sense, that's true. He never uses the words, I am God, but he does refer to himself in ways that do. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's a lot of skeptics. And, and I think a lot, I think you may be giving him too much credit, Aaron. I think a lot don't even read the scriptures well enough to know what it says. They just pick up this argument from somewhere on the internet and just repeat it. And it's totally untrue. You just spend a little bit of time with an open mind that mm -hmm. we would know the spirit needs to help you open. But anyway, uh, you, you just spend a little bit of time reading and it's it's pretty clear. This is this John 17, John 5 17 is a really helpful occurrence of this because not just what Jesus says, but John gives us the response of the Jews, which is so important. We have to pay attention to how those responded around him because it helps us to interpret it correctly. So we could miss it when Jesus says, my father is still working and I am working also. Is that a claim of divinity? You and I may not recognize that in our context. We might just say, okay, he's just saying he's on the same team. Yeah. But notice what verse 18 says. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, according to their thought, but he was even calling God his own father. And here it is, making himself equal to God. So John gives us an important detail that mm -hmm. explains what Jesus said was a direct claim of divinity. And the Jews recognized it as such. So we see here, not only is the miracle, again, we, we've talked about this a lot, but Jesus' miracle, I just met, said it a minute ago, it points us to the greater miracle of salvation. Uh, but even here, we see this points us to who Jesus is, the gospel, in how Jesus made one of his many claims to be divine. Yep. Yep. And, and we can't miss that. I mean, this is the thing. It's like, you know, I made the statement, you know, we don't, you know, Jesus doesn't use the exact words, I am God. Well, not the way that we understand that. He does, because this wasn't written in English originally. Yeah. Instead, he does things like this. He says, I and the Father are one. And we need to be um, careful because he will use the phrase, I am, quite a bit. Yes. 
and like there's the seven I am statements which go back to Exodus three fourteen Yahweh. So yep, which know. is what I was just going to get to. Okay, so <laughs> I'm just just beaten to the punch, I guess. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So this is stealing these, your thunder. Again, once again, this is the caveat show with Aaron and Brian. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so this is so these are the things. There are ways that we, you have to pay attention to the responses of people yeah. when they see him, when they res- when they react to the things that Jesus says and does. Um, you know, we see this in how he, um, you know, in a lot of the miracles that he performs. So many of them, the the response to those who are watching often are terror because they're things that only God can do. Yeah. Or, you know, like the man, uh, the, the the four friends who lowered their friend through the roof that, that occasion. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. And, and the response by the crowd was, wait a minute, only God can forgive sins. Yeah. And, and Jesus, so people started getting mad yeah, at that, too. Yeah. So uh, John 8, I think, is a great example of the I am. That's the argument with the Jewish leaders and uh, Jesus makes that statement before Abraham was, I am. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the clear connections to Yahweh. Basically, that's the way you can interpret that, that Jesus said before Abraham was, I'm God. I've been. I've always existed. And you re- again, you read the response and the Jews, they go from laughing at Jesus to being angry why? Because they recognize, oh, you, you're claiming divinity, and according to them, you're committing blasphemy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And and so with all of this, um, we see in this, we, we mentioned this earlier, but it bears repeating again. When we're thinking about the gospel, when we're thinking about this passage, remember that this passage sets up in that very long monologue that comes right after mm-hmm. them right after verse 18 with John saying that they were going to kill him because he was, because he was making himself equal to God. Um, We have this connection that Jesus makes between himself and scripture telling us, and that culminates in verses 39 and 40. And, um, and they say, you know, you pour over the scriptures because you think in that you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me so that you may have eternal life. So what this tells them, what Jesus is telling them here and what he's telling us by extension is that all of scripture focuses in on him. He is the point of all of it. Um, and so, um, this is a challenge for us as, yeah. as people today. Um, and, and it, ex- honestly, it explains a lot about, um, uh, it explains a lot about, um, skeptics and, and things like this to people like, cause there are skeptics who actually, um, are very thorough, thoroughly studied in the Bible. Um, and yet, um, what it says is that you can know the Bible, you can know about the Bible, you can study it really well, you can study it for your entire life and be an expert in languages and in um, literature and all of these kinds of things, and you can still miss the point yep. because you're dead in your sin. And that is, and so we need to know the subject of the Bible, who is Jesus. And we need to know the author 
of the Bible, who is uh, who is the triune God, <laughs> you know, which includes Jesus. Yeah. Um, and so, um, and 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 this is the thing: when we say things like that, when we when Jesus says things like this. Um, it's not arrogance. It's not, um, it's not, it's definitely not blasphemous on his part. Again, like what we were talking about, it would be horribly blasphemous and evil, um, in some of the worst possible ways for either of us or any other human being to claim that the Bible is all about them. And so when we are discipling people, the most important thing that we can do is we can show them how the Bible works together to, show us how it's all about jesus because if we don't get that we're missing it yeah without a doubt i mean it really it takes me to our final question of the sorry you know that really takes me to our final question that we'd like to ask of, of the guidance we can offer and let me just piggyback on this because i think it's so important as we think about um, discipling somebody, whether it be a, a child, whether it be uh, another adult or whatever the case may be, a small group context. Um, this passage gives us a great opportunity to consider the Bible, not only from verse 4, as we talked about, and we can get into a really important detail of, of biblical transmission and, and so forth. But as you're saying, if we get ahead to verse 39 and 40, those really important verses, it really, we have the opportunity to talk about inspiration, inerrancy, transmission, but here's the thing. We can't miss it. Um, this is, verses 39 and 40 are sobering and should be sobering to all of us, serving in some semblance of ministry or discipleship, as we should all be, because it reminds us that our goal is not to grow Bible trivia champions. It's to grow disciples of Jesus Christ who know and understand the gospel, who love God because of the gospel, and who live out the gospel. That's discipleship. Bible trivia is not bad. It's, it's helpful. It's important to know. But if that's our goal line, we are raising up modern-day Pharisees, of which Jesus may be able to say the same thing. You think you have life because you know the Bible, but you're dead in your sins. And we don't want to stand before God one day and him to say, how did you steward what I gave you people as you disciple them? And us to say, well, they're not here. They're in hell because they never trusted you, but they're in hell knowing a lot about the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's pretty serious. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I'm. We're both. We're both parents. We have middle middle to young aged um, children. Um, we're we're both entering the teen the the parents of teenager years. Um, you know, and this is where a lot of what we did in our early years as parenting. Um, not necessarily that we're going to see the fruit of that, but we get to see some of the implications of how we've done how god has been kind to us in that so far yeah and um you know inevitably we're gonna have challenges with with our kids no matter what age they are um you know and a lot of people will will maybe you're maybe they're in the same kind of spot that we are that you know 13 14 year old kids um you know 10 year olds eight year olds nine year olds those kind of things um 
you know, people who are increasingly having their own opinions about the world and, and all of these kind of things, it can honestly be really disheartening in, in those seasons. Um, I saw, I saw a lot of that, um, you know, in my early years as a, as a Christian watching older parents, um, uh, who were, who had parents had children who had children who were teenagers in early twenties. And, you know, they had seasons where they were walking away and things like this, or seemed like they were walking away. Um, and they, they were really disheartened. They were really discouraged, but in many, in some cases, their kids, their kids came back too and and this is the thing this is my very long-winded way of saying you know the thing that the thing that we have to remember is is that when we're discipling anyone whether it's our kids or it's someone outside of our immediate biological family um we like there are going to be times when it seems like they don't get it yeah there's going to be times when they're going to even rebel against it um but don't lose heart because God, it, like what we see in this passage, we don't see these Pharisees, you know, fall down at the end and and worship Jesus and say, "Oh my gosh, you're right, I totally get it." They don't repent. They they eventually these are the same guys who eventually go and kill Jesus, and so, and we don't know what happened to all of them. Hopefully, some of them eventually did repent, <laughs> but we don't know, and so. So we see these things and we, we need to not be surprised, but we also need to not lose hope. Um, and so instead we need to pray and we need to trust that God is going to work in their lives according to his purposes. Exactly. Yeah. So on that note, there's also one other thing that we, that we do notice here and that we do need to remember. And that really is um, thinking about what is important for us to see and what the, in why the again why the they yeah you want me to jump in on this one <laughs> yeah i think you should okay you know uh, with that uh, that's a great place to end but i think there's one other thing that we need to say before we do that about um, guidance we can offer and it's we see this in the jewish leaders attack of jesus um the problem with them is they were set in their ways and we see this several times uh the, the man who was born blind, we see something very similar. They, the, the Jewish leaders cannot reconcile the miracle that happened and their misunderstanding of what a godly person would or would not do, Jesus in this account. And they can't reconcile those two. But instead of saying, well, maybe the answer is our thinking is wrong, that they assume their thinking is correct. And so what they try to do instead is to make Jesus fit into their paradigm instead of exploding their paradigm and making their thinking fit into Jesus. We can do the same thing. The people we're discipling can do the same thing. We start with a preconceived notion of what God should do or, or what, who, who he should be, what he should be like, um, what we believe we deserve from God, uh, what we believe true happiness is. I mean, the list goes on and on. And we start with these things, either from our sinful hearts or our culture around us or poor teaching from somebody else that God wants us to be prosperous, for example. And we try to make everything fit into that. And so that's where we will take and abuse scripture 
to make it fit our context, our paradigm. And this is a great example of a passage where we can bring that to bear and put it on the microscopes of our own lives, our own minds, our own hearts, and say, where do we tend to do this? It may not be as extreme as we see here. It may be more subtle, but even if it's subtle, it can be just as lethal. And so it's a great opportunity for us to, to remind our people and ourselves that the starting point is the truth of the gospel, orthodoxy, right thinking. That's the starting point. And only from there can the gospel bear fruit in terms of changing our hearts, changing our lives and so forth. So we've got to fight for that right thinking. All right. And that is a good place for us to wrap this up for today. So Brian, thanks for, for discussing this passage. Uh, listeners, uh, thank you for listening to today's episode of the podcast. We do hope it has been helpful for you. And if you did enjoy it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com. 